This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome. Monday, January the 23rd. You are listening to The Cave. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson in London. Alex Steele, of course, over in New York. Um, Equity markets continuing to rally on both sides of the Atlantic today. To be honest, the US putting the European markets in the shade today. Um, So the FTSE 100 was up by two-tenths of 1% today, 77.84. It's had a pretty decent run year to date. But today... It's all about America. Today, it's all about technology. Alex, I had to double check this, kind of a little, as basically we've been going through the show. The Nasdaq is now up by over 2%. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Again. Huge. Uh, the S&P, well above its 200-day moving average, making yet another run for it. Now, part of it feels like we're re-oversold. Is that what's kind of happening on the short term? Do we feel better about going into, like, Microsoft earnings tomorrow? Um, you also, the chip guys getting an upgrade over at Barclays, like AMD, Seagate, and Qualcomm. So there was some fundamental basis for the for the rally. But nonetheless, when you have like the leading indicators rolling over, you got PMIs tomorrow. I appreciate that they're softer data. That feels a little risky. Yeah, I don't know. And you've also got Mike Wilson out basically saying, yeah, I think we could we're going to retest the October lows. In fact, I think we're going to go through them. I think um, mm-hmm. 3,300 is a possibility. I think you could look at three. I, sounding quite bearish. We had a conversation with him earlier on. Um, so, yeah, no, everybody's, everybody's definitely kind of doing what in some ways feels slightly counterintuitive. But, hey, this year is confusing the heck out of me. Yeah, and it's only 23 days in. The great melt-up is what I just saw uh, a note across my inbox. That seems to, like, sum it up pretty well. I think it does. Um, we are going to discuss this. Uh, we've got a lot to talk about today. Um, the the big issue that came out of Davos was the Inflation Reduction Act from Joe Biden in Washington, D.C. The Europeans are just trying to figure out how to react to it. So we're going to hear from Tony Danker, uh, the Director General of the CBI, in just a moment. Before we do that, though... Here's Charlie Pellet with the headline. Hi, thank you very much indeed, Guy Johnson. Here's what's going on. The UK grid is asking consumers to turn down power demand tomorrow evening as it struggles for a second day to plug the gap left by a dearth of wind generation. After spending about £1.3 million today to incentivize households to save energy, National Grid will seek to cut another 341 megawatts of demand tomorrow between 4.30 and 6 p.m., according to its website. The measure demonstrates how vulnerable Britain remains to colder weather and fluctuations in wind output as it scrambles to alleviate its energy crunch. The UK is urging energy suppliers to stop forcing financially vulnerable consumers to install prepayment meters, saying such meters should be used only as a last resort. Jonathan Brearley, CEO of regulator Ofgem, said in an interview on BBC Radio that a large number of customers are in effect being forced to pay for their energy in advance. And finance workers in the City of London are putting their job hunts on hold as they wait for bonuses before deciding on a move. 
There was a 23% drop in job seekers for finance jobs in the last three months of 2022, according to Morgan McKinley's Autumn London Employment Monitor published today. Hakan Enver, Managing Director of Morgan McKinley UK, says professionals are becoming more cautious and are waiting for bonuses before considering a move. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. Charlie, thank you very much indeed. Charlie's going to be back in around 30 minutes. He will continue to keep us updated on what we need to know. Um, over the uh, last week uh, and into the weekend, the, the subject that so many people were talking about, certainly at the World Economic Forum in Davos, was Joe Biden's Inflation Reduction Act. Europeans are belatedly catching up to the impact that it's going to have. This is a huge program of subsidies, tax breaks, etc., uh, for European, uh, for sorry, for US and global businesses uh, to invest in the green energy transition in the United States. It's having a huge impact already. It will have a massive impact going forward. Europe is just trying to catch up and figure out what to do about it. Over the weekend, uh, Emmanuel Macron uh, and Olaf Scholz, the German Chancellor, met to try and figure out how Europe, the EU, could respond to it. The UK also needs to figure out what it is going to do. Earlier, Alex and I spoke with Tony Danker. He is the direct director general of the Confederation of British Industry. And we started by asking him whether this is something the UK could replicate. Well, look, I think the problem is we don't have the money uh, that Joe Biden has put into the Inflation Reduction Act, nor that Ursula von der Leyen is talking about putting into the European response. So the UK is going to have to outsmart the others. Now, we've been really good at this in Britain for the last 10 years. We've got a very big leadership position in wind. We've used lots of market mechanisms, something called contracts for difference, which is where the government underwrites the risk of the private sector investor. And we're going to have to use some of those assets to compete, because to be honest, there's no way we can catch up with the spending of the Inflation Reduction Act or even the European response. So, Tony, when you talk to uh, companies, what specifically do they want? Like, would they prefer a straight-up check from the government? Are tax subsidies uh, enough? Do they need other ways to compete and attract financing into the UK out of Europe? Uh, is it more rules? Like, what is it? Yeah, look, I think what they want is they want upfront government support for the technologies that are essentially pre-commercial, right? So that upfront R&D to get the technologies to be, frankly, affordable, adoptable, uh, dispersable, uh, at that stage, the market will kick in. So that's the first thing. And the second thing they want is, again, what the government did on offshore wind, where they turned around and said, look, there is a wall of green money that wants to invest in these technologies. We need to build the right model that makes it a highly investable proposition, right? So if Mark Carney is right that there is 130 trillion of assets around the world looking to go to the best market that provides a return, Britain has to be good at that bit. We have to make green markets uh, that makes this the best place for the private sector to get return. Now, that's hard, given where we've been with windfall taxes uh, and the yep. sort of fallout from the Ukraine war. But I think Britain can have a go at that being the best place to invest your money. Shouldn't this be, Tony, a Brexit benefit? This is a government that talked about how nimble the UK could become in a post-Brexit environment. Do you think that's the reality? 
Yeah, look, I do. I mean, it's been really interesting to watch Ursula van der Leyen at Davos last week say that she's going to suspend state aid rules so the Europeans can do that. If you remember on Brexit, the Europeans fought so hard to make sure the UK couldn't break state aid rules. So I think the commercial reality of these countries is that everybody's fighting for share. But yes, actually, uh, we could be agile and nimble. One of the great challenges we have in Britain, as you'll know, is actually planning laws are incredibly slow. Mm -hmm. Lots of local politicians don't want to have onshore wind uh, pylons anywhere near their areas. They don't want to have solar panels that are spoiling uh, the green fields of Britain. And that's getting in the way at the moment, because sure, we can compete on subsidies, but we also have to get much better at planning projects quickly, getting electric vehicle charging infrastructure quickly, getting onshore wind farms quickly. And that at the moment is holding up the British response. And I hope the government will uh, crack that thing open in the next year if we're going to compete. Uh, great point, Tony, and it's the same here in the U.S. You can talk all you want about the funding, but unless you get pipes in the ground, it's a whole different story. Um, we don't have the same kind of worker issue, though, that the U.K. has. What is the best uh, solution to this? How do you manage a workforce that still is not there even if the money comes in? Yeah, look, I think this is really tough because British policymaking has turned around and said, look, post-Brexit, we don't want to have as much... Uh, economic migration. We, uh, you know, Brexit was a vote, really, a lot of it was to do with immigration. And so the government are taking a pretty anti-immigration stance, which means that some of the issues we're dealing with the world over, be it uh, people wanting to stay at home post-COVID, people retiring early, people having long-term sickness conditions from COVID. Yeah, you're right. The British government is going to have to have incredibly bold answers for that because we're not willing yep. to use immigration to get the skills we need right now. That's why today I put quite a lot of pressure on the government to say, look, whether or not it's childcare to help mums get back into work, whether or not it's the interrelationship between the benefit system and part-time work, the government will need to make some big changes here to, as you say, get skills into, uh, into the labour market as soon as possible, because we're short there, we're not willing to use immigration, and I'm afraid that's not good enough. Tony Danker, the Director General of the Confederation of British Industry, talking to Alex and myself a little bit earlier on. Tony, they're referencing one of the big problems that, that we face in terms of the energy transition that we're going through, uh, and that is the, the issue of permitting. We need to be able to, if we are going to make this transition, build new infrastructure. That may be nuclear power stations. Uh, it's certainly uh, going to be wind turbines onshore and offshore, speeding that process up uh, is, is a massive challenge. Then you get to the challenge of how you build a, a kind of mixed grid that is capable of dealing with, with any eventuality. And that's kind of being highlighted right now. Uh, we have got relatively cold weather. Uh, we have very little wind, as a result of which the UK is telling people to turn thermostats down, uh, turn washing machines off, not use the oven tonight. Um, at the same time, we are warming up, potentially firing up uh, older coal-fired power stations. Joining us now uh, to discuss all of this is Bloomberg's Rachel Morrison. Rachel, just coming back, I, I, I want to talk about that in just a moment. But let's just talk about what Tony Danker was talking about in terms of how advanced the UK is in terms of making the energy transition. How do, When you think about the Inflation Reduction Act in, in America and you think about the investment that's going to be made, how much investment has the UK relative to other countries already made in this energy transition? 
Well, the UK has been on the path to net zero for some years, and we do have quite ambitious net zero um, targets that we need to reach. And offshore wind is the technology that Boris Johnson's government and, and before him, but have chosen to sort of get us there. And we have seen a huge build out in that technology already. I mean, the UK is the second biggest market for offshore wind, second only to China, which it can't claim that kind of status in very many markets. And the key now will be to keep the pace going, to keep building, to keep attracting investment, because I was in Davos last week and as well, and what a lot of companies were saying is that they can choose where to put their money. And when they look at the UK, Europe and the US, you know, the incentives are much greater in the US, and that's really going to determine you know, capital flows and where projects get built. Is it a zero-sum game, though, at the end of the day? I mean, this is going to be a growing industry that's going to need a lot of support. It's not like, I appreciate there's a first-mover advantage, but just if the UK can't get the first round, it doesn't mean they're not going to get the second, third, and fourth. I mean, in some ways, they led so well when it came to wind, when it came to EVs and charging stations. Yeah, I think, I mean, you're right. A lot of people do say that it's a huge game. You know, the the number of gigawatts that are being um, asked for in policy is huge. So it's not a case of there not being enough projects and you have to choose where to put it, but it's the returns. You know, if you are trying to get financing for projects, if you're saying to your investors, look, I've got my pick of the best projects, we're going to go to the US, we're going to get these tax credits, then, you know, that that really does make a difference. And that's something that is making companies think, okay, we're going to build there. And the US has an opportunity to get really far ahead in green hydrogen, which is something that, you know, all countries that use gas are looking to build out. Just walk us through what's happening this evening and tomorrow. What measures are being taken? And are we basically looking at the new model of how we're going to manage the grid? Part of its demand, part of its supply. Yeah, we're sort of seeing the impact of that reliance on wind while it's great and reduces our emissions. You know, it has to be done in in step with backup generation. And that's what the UK is sort of struggling with a little bit at the moment, that when it's not windy, like it's not today and it won't be tomorrow, we don't really have enough options. So National Grid did um, think that this might happen and has a few tools you know, they're sort of for use when the grid looks really tight. One of them is this reserve of coal-fired plants, which they've been warming up on and off. They sort of said they might need them today. They didn't. Now it looks like they might need one tomorrow. Um, And those are there as a sort of insurance policy. If we don't have enough supply, we can use coal. Obviously, that's bad for emissions in the short term. And then on the other side of that, the other thing you can do is cut back demand. And for the first time tonight, households in Britain are being asked to use less energy. And in the intro, you mentioned some of the things that people can do to try to cut back their electricity use. That's between five and six. They're being asked to do that. Um, And, you know, that really is a sort of first step in this new world where everybody has to think a lot more about energy use. Mm -hmm. And people hope that cost is going to be the driver that makes people think about that a bit more. And if it works, that could be a big deal, no? Yeah, if you have an EV, you're probably already thinking like this. And this trial that the UK is doing, which lasts for this winter, I think we'll probably see it being picked up and, and used more because it makes sense. You know, if, it, if there isn't much, you know, much electricity because there's no wind and it's expensive, don't use it. 
um, and whenever you, you know, it's cheap, it's windy overnight, you can charge your car. So it's about getting people to understand that it's not the same amount of electricity we have on the system at all times. It does vary hugely. Rachel, lovely as ever. Thank you very much indeed for updating us. Um, So a number of people basically in the UK are not going to be cooking their dinner tonight. Sandwiches, apparently, on the menu. Uh, they're being told, being paid, incentivized to not use their oven. Rachel Morrison on the latest out of the UK. Much more still to follow. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. So just for perspective, it is January 23rd. European stocks, Stock 50, is up almost 10% year to date. FTSE 100 up 4%. CAC Carroll up over 8%. The DAX up over 8%. And a humongous rally that comes in. Now, we just got the headline a couple minutes ago that Ford is going to be cutting about 3,200 jobs across Europe, the majority concentrated in Germany. The job market rolls over. Can these equity returns actually hold up? So that's the dynamic that we're looking at. Equity is good. Data, a little bit iffy, potentially rolling over. So what do you do? Is it time to sell the European rally? We put that question to Seema Shaw, Managing Director of Principal Global Investors. It has been a tremendous performance. Um, you know, I think if you think about really asking yourself, what were the key drivers behind this this strong performance? I mean, one was obviously the European gas situation has improved beyond what was expected. And the second thing, it seems, is just that China reopening story is, um, is proving to be a little bit uh, more robust than, again, many have been expecting. So there are two things there which could be sustained, certainly. So I don't think this is time to sell the rally. But we do, I have to say, we are still questioning how much longer. Is it something that we can see um, lasting beyond the next six months, uh, next year or so? And I think for that, we're still undecided. Mm-hmm. The one thing that really Europe has going for it at this stage is simply its valuations. Now, it's still very, very cheap. So at the margin, if there's any kind of improvement, of course, investors are going to rush for, for European stocks. The other thing to consider is that if you're doing it from a relative value standpoint, the US is the one which still looks a little bit more challenged. It's still got that economic um, economic slowdown still ahead of it, whereas for Europe, it may well be that most of it is behind us. So if you don't want to be selling it, though, now, can you still be buying it now? I think you could be buying it in certain areas. Um, you know, we are. You do increasingly see that clients are continuously asking. You know, the, the big question for them this year is not necessarily are equities going to go down, but it's the kind of the U.S. versus non-U.S. stock story um, to a level that I haven't actually experienced before. So you do feel like there is some kind of traction. In which case, maybe we could see uh, this potentially as a bit of a buying opportunity. Yeah. From our perspective, we are neutral um, given the, the various questions I've laid out. It was interesting what you just said. Never really experienced this kind of interest before. Seema, do you think we've seen a paradigm shift? I, the last 10 years, certainly since 2008, it has been one-way traffic. The US has outperformed. You and I have had that conversation many, many times. Have we seen a paradigm shift? Yes. Are we in a different, a different it, environment now? Well, so I think there is a potential. The reason is, is that, you know, if you look at over the next five years, there is a general um, expectation that we're not going back to zero interest rates. A general expectation that inflation doesn't necessarily go below that 2% level on average. So from there, from then, you have to think, well, what part of equity stars is going to outperform? Is it going to be growth or is it going to be value? Well, from that perspective, actually, it's a time for value over the next five to 10 years. And which region has the greatest exposure to value? Well, it's Europe. 
So that is one um, one area which could suggest that this is a little bit more of a sustained, a little bit of a paradigm shift. But the big drawback for me, and this is where I really stop and have to hesitate, is, you know, you were just discussing it before, Europe is a very, very slow mover. You know, any regulation changes, any kind of novel ideas, it takes a very, very long time. And unfortunately, I think that will work against Europe um, over the next couple of years. And unfortunately, whereas, you know, for a long-term investor, you want to have um, a long-term view, I think for Europe, it is almost a kind of a take quarter by quarter at this stage. Okay, so then for the medium-term view, where is the better place to put? I mean, is it EM? Because we've also been asking the question that if, if U.S. actually rolls over, at some point it's going to take everyone else with it. Yeah, absolutely. And again, you know, this is an, another thing that we've been we've been trying to weigh up is that for emerging markets, the China reopening stories, of course, is fantastic. Um, but inevitably, if you do get a U.S. recession um, and the Fed is not cutting interest rates, that is a big negative for emerging markets, and it's something that we would we would expect them to really struggle with. Um, but then, look, if you're looking out over the next year. And I have to say, although we are expecting recession in the U.S., we don't think it's going to be particularly deep or, or prolonged. So if you're looking at over the next year or so, maybe this is a good time to be increasingly exposed to emerging markets on that longer term perspective and knowing um, that, you know, at least there's a strong growth story out there, especially if the Chinese government is genuinely willing yep. um, to put in place some of the regulatory structural reform, uh, stimulatory changes that would be needed to sustain growth. Let's just focus on the U.S. for a moment, though. We were talking to Mike Wilson in the last hour, and the question we posed to him, Seema, was can you have a profits recession without an economics recession, an economic recession? What do you think of that? Yeah, you know, we've been doing uh, the same analysis as everyone else, because obviously the, the economic growth numbers have been um, surprising to the upside. Well, look, historically, yes. You, you know, it's typically if there is a recession, an economic recession, the earnings recession is that much worse. But you have had circumstances where there has been an earning recession without that economic downturn. And typically it happens when there's three situations. One is that oil prices have gone up meaningfully. Two is that the dollar has strengthened very meaningfully. And the third thing is that the Fed has hiked uh, fairly aggressively. So those are three conditions that have been met. Um, so we do think that, you know, I, I think maybe you could say that there's a borderline question of a soft landing in the U.S. And you look at the labor market, it looks like a potential. Um, but for the earnings story, it does certainly seem that the slowdown um, is going to be deeper than what markets are currently expecting. That was, of course, Seema Shah, uh, Managing Director of Principal Global Investors, speaking to us a little bit uh, earlier on on Bloomberg Television. Alex, I think the most fascinating thing she said there was, and I've heard this for a number of other people as well, I think we may have seen a paradigm shift. It's been one-way traffic, as I discussed in that interview. Money has ultimately flowed to the United States. U.S. markets have ultimately outperformed the rest of the world. We are now in a new world. Yeah, you have to wonder two things, though. And I mentioned the Ford headline earlier, right? Like, if the job market kind of rolls over, where does that yep. leave that bid? Also, um, I was reading um, some analysis on Bloomberg that we're on the other could be on the other side of the dollar smile. Like if we don't have a euro dollar that's able to break and hold above the 110, and if everyone gets freaked out about a global recession or weak data, then do you get the bid into the dollar again? And then that would also sort of disrupt the potential for this paradigm change. Yeah, I think we've all got very conditioned, very conditioned to the U.S. being the primary market. Uh, if I'm I'm just I'm just interested if it that there are many reasons why that might not happen but if it does happen that's a really different world for a, for a lot of investors that have never seen that kind of world to invest in which just shows how much money you could see flow and how yep. reluctant maybe we'll be see seeing to sort of yeah. part with it but once you do it could be fast and furious
Well, yeah, it could be fast and furious. It could be, it could be substantial, but it, and it, it could last for a long time. Mm-hmm. Could take a long time to yank all that money out of the states. It's going to be fascinating to watch. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. Melt up was what I just saw across my inbox uh, to describe what we're seeing within the U.S. equity market. It's kind of crazy. Tech stocks catapulting higher here. We're looking at uh, uh, over 2% upside uh, for the NASDAQ 100. The S&P is up a whopping 50 points. And this comes as we get earnings coming out this week from Microsoft and Intel as well as Tesla. All of these guys have the uh, have the probability of really shaking up the market. Um, they're the ones that are cutting jobs. They're the ones that are getting their margins squeezed. Um, that's sort of the backdrop, though, headed into these numbers. At the same time, we get PMIs out of Europe as well as the U.S. tomorrow, so that'll be a nice read on the soft data. And the hard data seems to be a little bit lumpy. It gets a bit confusing. We're going to break this down with Mike Wilson in just a moment. But for now, let's get some more headlines here with Charlie. Hi, thank you very much, Alex Steele. And here's what's going on. Ambulance workers walked out today in the biggest show of industrial action by first responders since trade unions kicked off a historic series of protests against pay levels in Britain's National Health Service. Workers from Unison Unite and the GMB labor groups are on strike again, with the public advised to only call the 999 emergency number if there is a life-threatening situation. It's the first time ambulance workers from all three unions have walked out on the same day. The the reopening of China's borders is set to allow the return of its high-spending tourists back to the UK, helping to reduce the size of its recession in 2023. Forecasters at Credit Suisse expect Xi Jinping's reversal of strict zero-COVID constraints will drive a recovery in UK goods exports to China and draw in tourists that plow money into high-end shopping. Freezing temperatures across the UK in recent days have forced one in five professionals to change their working patterns and head back to the office, often to save money on heating. A survey of 1,700 UK workers by the independent job board CV Library found that 20.5% of the respondents decided to return to the office instead of working from home because of extreme wintry conditions. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. See, I object to this because I don't know about you guys, but I find offices to be frozen because they are set for men in suits and not women in skirts. That is a thoroughly valid point. Thank you, and I, and I totally, I totally agree. And uh, just to let you know, though, you're not the only one shivering today. Okay. Thank you. I, I feel really validated at this point. I'm Guy, is, is that why you're in the office right now, heating? Yeah, that's exactly why I'm in the office right now. Otherwise, That's why I always come to the office for the air conditioning, for the heat, to get away from my children. No, I joke. Uh, Does he no, I, it's it's nice and warm here. This this office is perfectly. I, I, the temperature in here is perfect. And I will I, leave I, you. I say that as a man. I will leave you with an anecdote, and that is, I spoke to a colleague. Uh, I spoke to an individual who works at a New York office, and this individual said the reason why they like to come into the office is because, unlike at home, they get treated with kindness, courtesy, and respect. So I will leave it there. Oh, ouch. Yes. That exactly. hurts. Okay. Um, 
All right. Well, that's one part of the story. Where are you going to go from there? Uh, I'm just going to go straight into like market stuff. Uh, So Guy and I were talking about the question of the day. And the question of the day today was about the divergence between the economy and stocks. And the idea being is that can you have a global earnings, can you have an earnings recession and not have an actual recession? Can those two things actually diverge? We were lucky enough to catch up with Mike Wilson, Morgan Stanley's chief U.S. equity strategist on it. Look, I think if the economy rolls over into recession, then it's very unlikely stocks will hold up. That's not priced. And the reason why it's not priced is because we don't know the answer yet. Right? I mean, there is an opportunity for the Fed to perhaps orchestrate a, a soft landing, meaning no labor cycle. But that's where we differ, I think, from, from most people, which is if we don't get a labor cycle because companies are hoarding labor, that's actually going to be worse for margins in the short term. And then secondarily, you know, if you don't cleanse it, you don't really have anything to get excited about. There's no reacceleration then for growth next year. So as bearish as we are on kind of earnings in the near term, we're actually probably more bullish than most on 2024 because we think we're in this, you know, boom bust boom environment that we've been talking yep. about for the last several years. And and you can't have your cake and eat it too, right? You can't say, oh well, I'll just look through this valley and then play the next boom. Well, I mean that's not really, you know advised um, I think if you think if you agree with our earnings call next year then you almost have to agree with our earnings call this year and the market won't look through that so in terms of how you think this is going to play out you think this is a near-term phenomenon you think this is going to happen soon Mike yet at the moment I'm looking at the soft data rolling over we're going to get the PMIs tomorrow but I'm looking at the hard data holding up I'm looking at the employment data in particular holding up. So which piece of data is going to get the markets to pay attention on the economic front and mark stocks lower? Yeah, I mean, what it always comes down to is earnings. I mean, earnings is the hard data series that drives stock prices the most. I mean, we've always said that and we continue to believe that. So we're just trusting our process, which is that, you know, the leading indicators for the hard data is soft data. And the soft data has rarely looked this week. So you, you have to be basically assuming it's different this time for the hard data not to follow. And you know that's not a position that we want to take, uh, particularly given that we just had a rally mm-hmm. uh, over the last three months, which has been spectacular. You know, we, you know, we sometimes get coined with being perma bears, but at last time I, we, we called for that rally in October and we basically got chased off the screen then. So you know, um, what's amazing to me is very few people wanted to play that rally in the fall, and now people want to play it after it's already happened. And, and the last thing I would say about that is what people are getting most excited about are three things. Mm-hmm. Confluence of China reopening, which is good, and we agree with that. Secondly, gas prices have come down precipitously in Europe, which is maybe keeping them out of a recession, at least in the near term. And then you have the hope for a Fed pivot, which is also our call that the Fed's going to pause after this next meeting. But the problem is you already priced all those things. You know, mm-hmm. The valuation now does not reflect the earnings risk that we still see in the U.S., which is not going to change from any of those three developments. So, Mike, on that point, um, Evercore had a note over the weekend that said that a China reopening is in the early innings and could unlock $1 trillion worth in excess household savings. Either you disagree with the number or you think that that's already priced, that amount is priced. Well, first of all, there's a timing to that. Okay, mm-hmm. so that, you know, $1 trillion is going to come out in the next three months, number one. Um, our intelligence and our sources would tell us that consumer confidence in China is still very fragile. So 
Yeah, they're reopening, and that's a good thing, and it's going to get there. But the, but the average consumer is still skeptical. Uh, they're still a bit scared of the virus, as they should be. They don't know how it's going to play out. Um, you know, there have been uh, increased death, death rates, et cetera. So it's going to be slow. So that's number one. Number two, I would say, you know, and we've done work on this, um, we think China's reopening is good for China. Um, it's going to be very good for the Chinese stock market. We're bullish there. Uh, but it's not going to necessarily drive revenue and earnings growth in the U.S. And that's what, that's what I was saying earlier. You know, China yep. basically is 3% of the S&P 500 revenues. So, you know, even if it is a, a faster reopening, it's not going to move the needle in the short term. Mike Wilson, Morgan Stanley's chief U.S. equity strategist, talking to Alex and myself a little bit earlier on. Alex, he thinks we go back through the October lows. In fact, he thinks there's a potential to go significantly below that 3,300 base case, 3,000 possible. Yeah, exactly. He was saying that the bear three, 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 and then uh, it, it could get pretty bad. I guess the question then becomes: Can the actual data hold up? And if it does. Isn't that kind of a different story at the end of the day? Um, and does weakness in soft data automatically lead to weakness uh, in the hard data? Yeah. I, I, there's not a call out on that yet. Well, we, we talked to a couple of economists after that conversation with Mike, both of whom who said it's not a direct line from mm -hmm. the soft survey data to the hard data. And now we're going to get a lot of survey data out tomorrow. We've got PMI data out from the Eurozone, out from the UK and out from the United States. So I think we're going to get a pretty good read on what is happening tomorrow. I'm really looking forward to seeing exactly what that data is going to tell us. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. So how would you like to earn a $16 billion profit after fees if you're a hedge fund manager? Well, Ken Griffin knows of Citadel. Um, killer, killer, killer year last year. That even beat John Paulson uh, and his uh, record short against the mortgage-backed security market back in 2007. Um, let's get more on this. And it can continue. Is it a one-off? Shelly Bassick joins us here in the studio. Shelly, what stood out from you from this? Uh, we were talking about it a little earlier, not just the one-year gain of $16 billion in profit, but the fact now that Citadel's gains since inception in 1990 are now almost $66 billion. The second closest to that is Bridgewater at $58 billion. Bridgewater's asset base is larger, but and they're an older firm with a big transition story, but Citadel is coming out to be the cream of the crop. They are just blasting right through the pack, though there were a number of funds that did quite well last year in a, a bad year, typically for the hedge fund industry. Um, is it better to be big? Is that the message here? It's totally the message, but you know, I've been thinking about this a lot since you asked me earlier this today, Guy. Is it better to be big? Yes, it's better to be big, but only because you could take chances on parts of the market that are doing well in a one-off time. You could be nimble in that way. You can pay for the talent that you want. I was thinking about the fee structure here, because late last year, you had certain firms like D.E. Shaw, for example, or even Brevin Howard that had an amazing year after some you know choppy performance. And they are ending up charging investors more, whether it's a flat rate or whether it's to pay the talent more. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, that flexibility in paying talent is what gets you there. That's why the scale matters so much. Do the smaller guys do well? Like we talked a lot about how like the top ten, top twenty really crushed it. But what about the rest? You know what's funny about hedge fund returns? You you write the stories, you do the TV appearances, you do the radio, and then you hear from them all, and they get very frustrated when you see oh so and so hedge fund manager up a hundred percent. Well, yeah, they have a much smaller asset base. There are small firms that do. St 
still do well, but they're not managing quite as much money. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for example, uh, Said Haydar had an amazing mm-hmm. year last year and was up through the moon. However, it is off of a smaller base. So a double-digit return at a place like Citadel or even Bridgewater, where the performance kind of tapered off at the end of last year, is a different story because the asset base is so much bigger. So the is the big big and better is a great question because there are definitely instances as, as an investor that you might want to pay that one-off manager to do something very specific for you. Are these funds hedge funds? I, are they hedging risk? I will say the multi-strategy funds typically are. Why? So this isn't just a beta trade. This is there is genuine alpha being produced here. There, there really is, and I think the question that you're asking is very relevant because until this point, where yes, it's been a years-long industry trend towards multi-strats, but it's not like Bridgewater had, for example, which used to be the top, had an amazing several years before last year, mm-hmm. and even last year. Remember, like I said, performance started to taper at the end of last year. So yes, I mean the concept of a hedge fund is finally coming back into investors' minds and into the way these folks think about what they do every day. Well, it's interesting that this data came out and John Author's piece overnight just talked about this exact same thing, that just because it all worked out last year doesn't mean it's going to keep working out. Like, is this a huge sea change where you can actually like use shorts, bet on market, there's dispersion, things aren't moving together, etc.? Or was this a one-off? And to the question that Guy was putting there, too, it's like, you know, until now, you really were not betting on quote unquote hedge funds. You were betting on stock pickers. You were betting on all these guys right. mm-hmm. that bet on these big high flying tech names and gained in the market. And now you had those traditional hedge funds that are showing you outperformance that was very significant. The reason you would have to believe that this is not a one-off is that into this year, the markets are still fundamentally different in that there's not a one-way, you know, central banks pumping up the market, high-flying growth names trade. Now, greats, commodities, still interesting whether you go long or short. Uh, Trend following has been very exciting for Mm -hmm. those quant investors coming back. So certain strategies have some wins in their favor. Yeah, I was going to say, it feels like the quants really, really shined. Good for Um, me. All right, Shanali, yeah, exactly. Thanks so much. Really appreciate (laughs) Shanali Bassett joining us there. Uh, Coming up, Elon Musk is right now at a courthouse in a securities trial. We're going to get the latest really interesting things coming out of that. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You are listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. It is day two in the Tesla Take Private trial that Elon Musk is giving testimony to. Uh, He began giving testimony on Friday. Uh, I think he testified for around 25 minutes. Basically, this is a trial that relates to a tweet in 2018, August 2018, uh, that Elon Musk uh, delivered to the business he now owns, Twitter, uh, about taking Tesla private. Um, He's back at it again. He's answering questions right now in this case. Let's get an update on what is happening here uh, with Bloomberg Technology co-host Ed Ludlow. Ed, um, what did we learn Friday? What are we learning today? We didn't learn a great deal on Friday. uh, So luckily, we've had the weekend to sleep on it. Um, But remember that that Musk goes into this trial at a disadvantage because the judge has already made a pre-trial ruling or decision that prima facie the tweet, the infamous tweet, 
taking Tesla private at $4.20 a share was, was a false or, or misleading statement. And the jury were already instructed as to that fact before he took the stand. So what he's got to do is stand in front of uh, a panel of his peers and basically convince them that it was legit, that you know the, the characters that we've reported on at Bloomberg News, whether it's Saudi's public investment fund or Larry Ellison, other names that are in the room at the time, that there's evidence that actually, yes, this was a concrete plan, that it had been discussed and that the funding was indeed secured, which if you're a layperson, uh, it, it's hard to pass over. Does he see the relationship between him, his tweets and Tesla stock? Well, he, he, he talked pretty openly that he, he tweets about the share price. And this was, this was actually as far as we got on Friday. The idea that when Elon Musk tweets something, um, it's not a material inducer of uh, investors' rationale to trade one way or the other. The quote is, just because I tweet about something doesn't mean people believe it or will act accordingly. That was kind of the focus of the plaintiff's lawyers on Friday. Um, we've kind of moved that line of argument forward by focusing on the 420 part of the tweet, right? So, so there's a, a uh, 420 is a cultural reference to marijuana for, for, simple, uh, for a simple explanation. And, and part of the questioning that the lawyers have been levying at Musk this morning has been about, was that a joke? You know, was it you were just joking? Why would it be 420? But 420 is a cultural reference to marijuana. And Musk is arguing that it's not a joke. And actually, at one point in proceedings, he got pretty irate and said, you know, I think you're being misleading here, sir, towards the plaintiff's lawyer. This was not a joke. And he said that in a board meeting or in a correspondence mm. with Tesla's board, he'd explained that 420 was simply a 20% premium over Tesla's then share price. Um, yeah, again, difficult for a jury. What's the risk here for, for Elon Musk? Well, the, the, the risk is that, you know, he loses the trial and then is liable uh, to to pay the investor group that brought the suit uh, billions of dollars, which um, at a time where he is pretty uh, levered in terms of the amount of his, his stock that's that's committed to, to debt or, you know, he's just gone through the financing of Twitter, that would be... Um, that would be bad, but you know, many legal experts also pass this idea it'd be a pretty big reputational blow because he's effectively going on the stand and saying, my defense is you don't believe everything that I tweet, but on that occasion, what I tweeted was true. That, Do you see what I'm saying? That's a tricky yeah. line. Yeah. No one believes me, but that was actually true. What? I don't know about that one. What? What else are we hoping to hear? Like, what are the tidbits that are going to give us any clarity on this one? I think there is some sort of granularity that's coming out, you know, from... As we speak, right, Musk is on, is on the stand right now, and, and a lot of it centers around um, the relationship with Saudi Arabia's public investment fund. You know, Musk's line is, quote, unequivocally, Saudi's PIF wanted to participate in this deal to take Tesla private. One of the pieces of evidence presented by the plaintiffs is this correspondence with Al Rumayan, right, the, the chair of Saudi's PIF which is a text message Musk saying, you know, basically, we, we never committed to that. We were awaiting more details from you. Um, you'd think that that was pretty damning evidence in his response. But Musk is adamant and in delivering, delivering testimony saying, you know, it was five years ago, so I can't remember all of the details. But we had a series of meetings. I was there. Saudi's PIF was there. Other participants were on those meetings, as was then Tesla CFO, uh, former CFO. Um, 
again, you just try to put your yourself. Remember, it's a mm. jury trial. Put yourself in in the the shoes of a juror and try and go over all of this. You know, um, one of the points that the plaintiff made was this was not a straightforward. This was an unprecedented business transaction to take a company of that size private. A point that must disputes. If you're a juror, how do you know one way or the other? Does Microsoft want to do my son's homework? Yeah. Your son wants it to. I find this fascinating. I mean, <laughs> you guys have got your Bloomberg terminals in front of you, right? This is one of the best read stories uh, of the day so far. And we've known about it for 10 days or so. You know, Bloomberg reported that the figure is about 10 billion over a series of years. Um, you know, the, the, the blog post from OpenAI didn't list a figure, just said it was multi-billions. But the idea here is that the underlying check technology, GPT 3.5, which ChatGPT is based on, the algorithm or artificial intelligence, could really help Microsoft's existing products. And actually, one piece of news that went under the radar in the last week is Microsoft's already do it. So if you're an Azure Cloud customer and you have your tools hosted in the cloud, you can actually use both DALI, the imaging processing, artificial intelligence, or ChatGPT and other AI tools to boost your own tools is if it's already quite real it's something that microsoft kind of publicly announced they're expanding um but context they just announced laying off 10,000 people mm-hmm. uh 10 billion dollar investment a week after 10,000 layoffs it shows you that this is a really important area for them going forward but to the but to guy's point i was reading a lot of articles recently about how professors have to totally change up how they teach like oral essays instead yep. of written yes. like you have to do the essay or your thesis like in the classroom or at least have like outlined notes like all the, I, things i would have never thought about before it's interesting like a question for for me and one you know i think on the bloomberg technology show this is going to come around quite quickly is how quickly dc starts to crack down on this like they've done with tiktok for example you yeah. know there is concern from the academic community about actually a lot of what's generated out of chat gpt is false it is inaccurate so if you put mm. a command in often what you get back is not factually correct um but as you guys kind of allude to the, the, it was so quick how the concern about plagiarism came up because you can put in requests and write my essay for me here's the keywords and, and boom off you go we gotta leave it there thanks so much this is bloomberg <laughs>